Good afternoon, Joe and Chase. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Doing good. Bye. Very good, Jeff. The Wednesday edition, Joe's in Elmira, New York. Chase is in Fishers, Indiana. I'm in Exton, Pennsylvania, and we are in Acts chapter 14 today. Anybody want to give us a quick, uh, just kind of a how we got here, a quick how we got here? Well, we're looking at the first missionary journey. That's typically the, the phrase that we use. Um, uh, I'm not particularly opposed to that, but we've also ought to maybe recognize that when we say missionary journey, we're not just talking about him continually traveling from one place to another, but he spends some time in uh, some of the places. Um, and so, so just, just to illustrate my being in a mood today, you say you're not particularly opposed to that. Are you particularly fond of that? Uh, so uh, I'm okay with it as a superficial uh, overview statement. Um, okay. uh, but, but thanks for being contrary. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure what my role will be on here today. If you're going to take that position, um, uh, that's usually what I try to do. Uh, uh, so, but uh, the, the Holy Spirit has sent Paul and Barnabas um, uh, out to uh, preach to the Gentiles. And so they first went to Cyprus which was Barnabas's uh, home island and uh, taught the gospel there. From there, they went uh, over to the mainland, um, uh, looking mainly at Antioch of Pisidia, not to be confused with Antioch of Syria. And uh, then uh, from there, um, we see them headed to Iconium. And that's kind of where we're gonna pick up here in chapter 14, right? Yeah, and I'll, I'll put it on the map here real quickly. Um, we see our map here. They started their journey. Um, hmm, my mouse won't work. There we go. Started their journey here. They went through Cyprus in chapter 13 and came to Antioch eventually and then to Iconium. And now today we're going to pick up with them arriving here in Lystra and then we'll get them over in Derby and then they're going to reverse course and come back through these cities. So, so where do you want to jump in? Do we do we need to? Re We've kind of reviewed the first seven verses. You want to just start in at verse eight? That'd be fine. Okay, Chase, why don't you get us started here? In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened to as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, "Stand up on your feet!" And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, and they brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. I think one of you guys mentioned last week, did one of you guys mention that, you know, just back in chapter 12, we'd seen... Herod being uh, extolled as a god, and he accepted that. And the next thing you know, he is struck by God, and he's eaten by worms. And now here you've got Paul and Barnabas being honored as if they are gods. And they're did one of you mention that last week? I think Chase did. Yeah, I brought that up. I, I thought, you know, I had never really put those two together, but that's such a strike. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't expect Paul and Barnabas to accept this. But at the same time, what happened with Herod in Jerusalem? <laughs> no, no, stop. Don't get that bull near me. <laughs> anyway, uh, what else do you want to notice here in, in this text before we go on? 
so do we uh, do we see this as kind of a turning point or maybe a formal turning point um for paul um you know early on it was kind of barnabas and paul and uh, i guess really from cyprus on uh paul becomes more of the the leader the chief speaker but it but it really uh it's clearly stated here in verse 12 right mm-hmm yep mm-hmm um He's the chief speaker, and hence they associated him with Hermes. Now, some who are listening to this, you may have a Bible that instead of saying Zeus and Hermes, says Jupiter and Mercury. Chase, as you read it, you said Zeus and Hermes, right? Yes, sir. Okay. So Zeus and Hermes would be the Greek names. Jupiter and Mercury would be the Roman names, right? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And uh, so Zeus, obviously, he's he's kind of the great Greek god that there was. And then Hermes, he was like the messenger god, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Am I right about that? Okay. I think so. so you you can kind of see the way that they're equating the Greek gods to both of these guys. And I, I just want to say, too, it sounds foolish to us, but, I mean, to some pagans, this is what they're used to. Uh, so this is all they know, and Paul's going to capitalize on that at some point. Here we'll read in just a moment to try to redirect that kind of thing to the right person, which is God. Okay, so verse 14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they rent their garments and sprang forth among the multitude, crying out and saying, sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you. In other words, we're just men like you are. Um, and bring you good tidings that you should turn from these vain things unto a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. So many of the pagans had a concept of a God who was responsible for this, a God who was responsible for that, a God of the sea. In the Old Testament, we read about a God of the hills and a, another God of the plains and so on. And Paul says, you know, we, we are uh, talking about a God who made everything. And then he says in verse 16, who in the generations gone by suffered all the nations to walk in their own ways. And yet, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the multitude from doing sacrifice unto them. That's a funny picture unto me that it's like the people are, are you sure you don't want us to sacrifice? But what we can still sacrifice if you want. Well, how about if we just sacrifice a, a little animal? You know, just no, no, don't do it. Uh, this passage in verse 17, it reminds me of another passage in the New Testament, uh, Romans, the first chapter, where Paul talks about God being known through his creation. You guys probably make that same connection. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm saying, and, yeah, and how significant that is for people that don't know the Old Testament. You know, he's starting where they are, right? Uh, they, they can see the creation. They can see the things about them. And so he's yeah. saying, you know, there's one God who made all of these things. Right. It reminds me also. Well, and, go ahead. I'm just going to say, I mean, in chapter 13, Paul's addressing a Jewish audience. And I mean, we indicated last week, I mean, just how much Old Testament reference there was there because that's where they were. And so he started there and now he's starting with with some things that they would have known. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to think about when we teach other people starting where they are. Right. And so if I'm talking to somebody who believes in Jesus, they already believe he was resurrected from the dead and that he is Lord. Well, then if I know they're participating in a sin that they should not be, I'm going to start right there with that. If you believe Jesus is Lord, then have you considered what he said over here in this passage? Whereas somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, I got to start back there with them on convincing them that he is Lord. Sometimes somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible at all, I've had to do exactly this to start 
well, look around you. Does it really make sense to you that all this came by accident? Or do we see evidence of a creator, whoever that creator may be? And then if they can get to that point, then, then we can talk about, okay, the Bible presents the story of a creator. Does it make a credible claim that the, the God described in the Bible is the one who created all this? Uh, I was going to mention Psalm 19. Um, you know, the first uh, six verses of Psalm 19 are about the evidence of God in his creation. Maybe if I could read the first two verses. Yep. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Uh, their line has not their utterances to the end of the world in this place they tent for the sun. And it goes on and describes the sun coming in its glory. And, and the whole point of all of this is, is God's glory is manifest in the things that he's made. And then that, that's really helpful to, for Psalm 19 because the last half of that then emphasizes the word that leads us to wisdom and understanding uh, and a, a relationship with the, with the Lord who created all those things described in 1 through 6. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing. Beginning with the creation, then he's going to tell them about the, this, this God who, who created it all. Yeah, and you know, since you mentioned that you've got his revelation in his creation in the first six verses, and then in the last part of the psalm, you've got his revelation in his word. And there's an interesting contrast that, that I'll mention in Psalm 19. In the first six verses, God is referred to as God or Elohim. It's not until it's where he talks about his revelation in his word that he's referred to as Yahweh, or in your Bible, probably Lord in all caps, which is the name of God. You can look at God's creation and you can see evidence there is a God, but you don't come to know him through his creation. You don't know what he uh, what he wants of you. You don't know if you're, you are in good standing with him. You don't know how to walk in his ways. You don't know if you're going to be condemned or blessed eternally. You don't know any of that from his creation. People sometimes want to get in tune with God, be one with God by going out into nature. If you want to be one with God, you've got to listen to what he says. It's in his revelation in his word where you come to know him by his name. So is there, meaning to change the subject, what do we do with the fact that Barnabas is called an apostle in verse 14? Uh, he doesn't seem to fit, you know, he's not listed in the names of uh, of Acts chapter one, and so, uh, in in what way is Barnabas an apostle? Uh, so it's not, it's not verse fourteen, is it? Yeah, it is yeah, verse 14, 14. 14. Yeah, the apostles oh, yeah, Barnabas yeah. and Paul. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we uh, we debate what verse it's in. <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes uh, we have a very limited. Uh, idea of the word apostles and we think about just the 12 or or just the 12 plus matthias plus paul but now we've got barnabas included as well um yeah so i guess the way i i think through it joe i mean apostle just literally means sent out one somebody who's sent out on someone's behalf and so we would certainly see that out of paul or out of barnabas with the church at antioch having sent him out for a purpose of preaching and teaching Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews, the third chapter. I believe, I believe it's right there in verse one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so it's, yeah, so it's the, the idea of being sent out by somebody. But I also wanted to ask a question on this note. Um, do we have any 
So is Paul, let's see, let me go back and look at it. So Paul is the one doing this miracle in verse 10. Am I missing something obvious? Was Barnabas doing miracles? I, off the top of my head, cannot remember a text where it specifically attributes a miracle to Barnabas, but I would not doubt that he had the ability to, to do so. If we look at Acts chapter 15, it says in verse 12, when Paul and Barnabas are responding to the people in Jerusalem who say only uh, that the Gentiles have to become Jews, in essence, they have to keep the law of Moses, they have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas, when they spoke, <coughs> says <coughs> they were rehearsing what signs and wonders God <coughs> had wrought among the Gentiles through them. Now, so that, you, okay, that would do it for me. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I could imagine the possibility of that language, even if it were only Paul doing it, but they're working together. But it does say through them. And so if you press, press that, you might suppose it means Paul was also doing, I mean, Barnabas was also doing miracles. And so would we take that word apostle as, as one sent forth and uh, look back then at chapter 13 and see that they were being sent out by by really by two different sources right they were being sent by the the church um acts 13 3 and they were also sent by the holy spirit in acts 13 4. um second corinthians 8 and verse 23 even includes titus as an apostle uh if i'm not mistaken the same word is used no. there um uh, that he's a messenger of the churches he's sent right. by the churches right um and so we're not we're not limiting that to just the 12 or whatever we're talking about somebody who was being sent forth i'm also wondering if there's not an intended uh contrast here in acts 14 uh feel free to, to correct me if you see this differently but they're seeing uh paul and barnabas as zeus and hermes and but Luke is wanting to emphasize, no, these are two men who are being sent by by God. Um, uh, these these yeah, are men who are being sent by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, you know, part of this is just backing up and remembering that when we read words in the Bible like church and baptize and bishop and pastor and and deacon and apostle, all these words were words that had just everyday meanings back then. They were not ecclesiastical terms. And right. so you could have a shepherd and it's just a reference to a guy out there with a bunch of sheep on a hillside, or you could have a guy who is a shepherd in a spiritual capacity using the metaphor of the shepherd on the hillside for people who are the flock of God. And similarly here, this word apostle, it's, it's a word that means somebody who's sent and it could be used for somebody who's sent in various contexts, or it could be used specifically of the 12 whom Jesus sends out into the world beginning Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Excellent. All right. Well, so, somebody can say, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, so we're ready for verse 19? Yeah. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derby. You know, the, these people, they are really set against Paul. Uh, Iconium is fairly close to Lystra, but they also came from Antioch, which is uh, nearly 50 miles away. I'm looking a quick glance at the map. That's what it looks like. Um, 
and they come to, to persecute Paul now here in Lystra, and they think they've killed him. And, and these are Jews that are coming to these primarily Gentile areas mm -hmm. um, uh, so upset with the, the teaching of Paul um, that they're willing to go well out of their way to deal with cities that they're not even primarily involved in, it would seem. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You can just see the, the, the determination of Satan to try to thwart God's plan. I also think you see the fickleness of people in this as well, because they went over the crowds, it says. So it is the Jews obviously instigating this, but they went over the crowds. The same crowd that was wanting to worship them as gods in verse 14 or in verses 11 through 13 are now stoning them. Yeah. And I think that that shows the fickleness of people. And I think we see it in our generation as well. Oh, I'll believe in this and then I'll go believe in that. And we're, yeah. we're just taking any source of media or whatever the popular culture is is wanting us to believe that that's what we go along with. And in a matter of time, we, we can go from this position to this one and just back and forth. And uh, Christianity is offering a consistent, a very consistent way of believing and thinking. And, you know, it, it really comes down to whether or not I am focused on another person or I'm focused on the Lord. Um, if I'm focused on the Lord, I can put up with a lot in my counterparts here on earth, in my brethren, because I'm I'm fallible. They're fallible. Um, and they're going to make mistakes, but they're not my standard. But if I'm focused on people and I get all enthused about somebody, well, he's going to make a mistake. And then, then you know, but if, I think it is something we see often today. Well, all Imp right. impressive that Paul, having been nearly killed, they, they, they believe he's dead. I mean, he, he's drug out of the city. You know, you imagine him being stoned, being hit with, with rocks until to the point where they're not seeing any life left in him. And then they drag his body out of the city and just sort of dispose of it, dump it outside the city walls. And then he re is revived and he walks back into the city. I mean, that's really incredible yeah. um, that, that he goes back in. He, he rose up and went back into the city spent the night there before he leaves mm -hmm. um you know how encouraging that would be for the disciples mm -hmm. uh, for those who were were converted during that time oh absolutely and then he heads on to derby and um and uh verse 21 it says when they preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples they returned to Lystra. So now he comes back again to, to Lystra where he was stoned and to anti uh, and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. So they backtrack, they return. I'm just going to put this map back here on screen real quickly. And uh, so here we go. Uh, they got to, oh, I forgot to click the little share button. Okay, so so they got he was stoned at Lystra. Well, I have to wait for my mouse to catch up. Okay, here we go. They were stoned at Lystra, then came to Derby, and then they backtracked to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And what does it say they did in each of those cities? Strengthened, exhorted, and appointed elders. Right. So they had preached the gospel, and there were now disciples of Jesus in each of these cities. So they strengthened them. 
and they appoint elders in each of those cities. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, a lot to talk about in connection with appointing elders. Yeah, so this would be the first time we see elders in the New Testament, correct? Like as far as the New Testament church goes. Mm -hmm. What would you all, someone recently presented me the idea of thinking through what a predominantly Jewish church would have thought of as their elders opposed to now the elders in the Lord's church. You guys ever thought about the similarities between those? Mm -hmm. All right, well then you expound on that because I, I didn't have a whole lot. <laughs> there was the concept of the elders. Jesus talks about the traditions of the elders. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the concept of the elders in the Jewish synagogue, in Jewish culture generally. There was the, the uh, it, you, you see it in the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, this was not a new idea that when we come to congregations of Jesus' disciples, that certain men would be regarded as elders who are to be looked up to, who are to be esteemed, who are to be thought of as leaders, uh, as people who would hold us accountable. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of an elder, yeah, like you're saying, wouldn't have been, you know, wildly crazy to them or anything like that. Yeah. Anyways, that, that was all. I just wanted to draw that parallel. Yeah. I, you know, there are a lot of things. You think about the synagogue system. There, the synagogue system, to the best of my knowledge, is not something that we we see in the Old Testament. It seems to have developed coming out of captivity. Is that your understanding? Do you, is there anything in the Old yeah. Testament? And yet, in that system, there see, it, I, I, God God uses things to accomplish things, and it, it would seem that He used the synagogue system as a uh, a means of preparing for the understanding of congregations of churches in each city uh amongst the the followers of jesus when when james is writing in chapter two when he talks about their assembly he calls it synagogue correct he does, he does. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, and i think i think that kind of solidifies the point that you're making is god kind of used that to pave the way for what the new testament churches would be doing so um so guys um you all are probably familiar with churches that have existed for 40 years and never have appointed elders. Uh, here in Acts chapter 14, we see uh, Paul goes to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, Paul and Barnabas do, and in short order returns to those places and they appoint elders. Um, and I, th I think there is both an indictment for us today, but also a an, an explanation that lets us off the hook just a little bit um what do you what do you have to say well i like the indictment part all right let's talk about the indictment part <laughs> um you know i i, I think that to some degree um uh, we have uh, uh maybe mis uh understood or misapplied the concept of uh, men qualified to be elders and leaders um certainly we have the qualifications that are described in first timothy 3 and titus 1 but it it seems as if in some people's minds we're looking for the kind of the perfect man and uh, and of course that doesn't exist and and now we need a plurality so now we need two perfect men um uh, before we can uh have an, an eldership in a congregation and and that just seems to be missing the point of of what those passages are describing they're mature men they meet those qualifications 
but no one meets them perfectly, flawlessly. Mm -hmm. I also think the way the New Testament talks about it, it seems like a congregation that has elders might even, you might even say it is a mark of maturity in a local congregation, not just because of those mature men, but because that was God's will from the start. I mean, as soon as Paul is coming back through, he's appointing elders. And whenever Paul leaves Titus in Crete, he says, you need to set in order what remains or what is lacking. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're lacking this kind of mature leadership in the role of elders. Yeah. So these, the, so that, so I think, I, I do think, I do believe we are negligent in many congregations in getting elders appointed. We're negligent in developing ourselves to be prepared to serve as elders very often. Um, I, it, you know, I was, I, I'm going to, well, I'm going to chase a rabbit here and go halfway around the world, but I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, I was thinking about um, the difference in our, in the congregation here in Exton, how often we get together each week, how often we assemble for uh, an opportunity to worship God or study the Bible, as opposed to, say, in Guatemala, where in areas I'm familiar with, they'll meet three or four times a week, uh, every week. And, and it's easy to think about differences in the culture and say, well, there, they don't have a lot to do on weeknights. They don't have a movie to go to. They can't afford to go out to eat at night. They don't, um, they, they, uh, they don't have all the social organizations that they're part of, and they don't have the PTA meetings, and they don't have, there's a lot of things that they don't have, so they've got nothing else to do. And, it, and if I think of it that way, you know, you kind of catch yourself real quick going, what am I saying that they're just worshiping God because they've got nothing else to do? But the other thing to think about is, well, wait a minute. Are we saying that we don't need to be assembling as often because we've got so many other things to do? Maybe that there's the problem right there. Maybe our focus, maybe what's important to us, maybe maybe we're like Mary, who was concerned about many things where Mary had chosen the one thing that was needful. So why, why, why did that even come to mind? Well, in talking about elders um, and, and church, churches not being able to appoint elders because people have not prepared themselves, so maybe to some degree, it's just a function of us just being too busy about less important things. So we're not maturing at a rate that we should. Even individually. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. So individually, we're not putting a big enough push on maturing fast. And is that not kind of the idea in Hebrews 5, whenever he says, many of you should have been teachers by now? Yeah, yeah. But you're still on the milk rather than the meat. But there is there's the other side of the coin here, and that is, when you think about the situation in the first century, there are two factors that would have enabled them to appoint yeah. elders in some circumstances more quickly than we really could, even best case scenario. Uh, you have a brand new congregation starting in Antioch or Iconium. Even though we're largely talking about Gentiles in these areas, there were some Jews who were converted in these areas. And if you have a man who is a Jewish believer, he is a devout servant of God under the law, and he is looking for the Messiah to come. And he's been raising his family in accordance with what he knows in the scriptures, the scriptures which Paul described to Timothy as the things which are able to save you, uh, which Timothy had known from a babe. Uh, you've got a man who's raising his family that way. And when Paul and Barnabas come to town, he quickly embraces the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. He's baptized. His, his, 
his children may be old enough to understand because the way he's raised them and they are baptized into Christ. One of the qualifications for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3 is that he's not a novice. But I'm not sure you would call this man a novice. He's somebody who could who could be very mighty in the scriptures, as Apollos was described as being. Um, and uh, and he just needed to hear that the Messiah has come. And so that's one factor. And then the other factor that I would mention is, in the New Testament, these men were equipped with spiritual gifts. And specifically, I think we have an allusion to uh, a spe- specific gift that is specifically pertaining to leading as, a, as an overseer in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, where he says um, uh, in verse 28, he's talking about God having set some of the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps governments, different kinds of tongues. When he talks about, um, well, now I'm going to have to grab my Greek text there. I think it's the one where this one translates it governments, but it's a, it's a word that is used of piloting a ship. And it looks like here he's talking about it's, it, it's it's you're not thinking of like early in 12 because that's where my mind went was 12 8. No, it's Kubiernesis or Kubiernes, Kubiern uh, in 12 28. And it is this word, uh, this translated governments in the American Standard. And also okay. in Romans 12 8, he talks about uh, some of the differing gifts, and one of them is leading with diligence. And I was even thinking in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, he talks about one is given a message of wisdom through the spirit to another, a message of knowledge by the same spirit. Um, oh, I lost my place. Sorry. To another I, faith I, by the same spirit. So not knowledge and wisdom was a spiritual gift as well, is yeah, my point. I, that, I pronounced that word wrong. It's, it's, it's actually kubernesis. Um, Joe and I both both knew that we just didn't want to embarrass well, that's you. why i wanted to yeah. correct it because i knew i'd hear about it after the show <laughs> so, <laughs> but it it's it's used in revelation of a of a pilot of a ship somebody who guides a ship into port for example and um in this context where you've got apostles and prophets and teachers being mentioned i think i think that's what it's talking about so all i'm saying is there were certain things that could quickly equip a man then to serve as an overseer if he had a background in judaism in the law of moses and was devout and then if he had these spiritual gifts so he the new testament hasn't been written yet anybody who's going to be a a teacher of the word of god in the new testament isn't going to need this direct revelation you could have a man being equipped in a way more quickly than than he would than he might be today joe you look like you're thinking yeah or your picture's frozen He's frozen. I think we lost him for a second. It, it I will say this too. It actually looks like he's praying. Uh, kind of <laughs> does. He might be. Um, I will. I will say this too. You're talking. You're talking about really the role of the Holy Spirit in in all of this. Yeah. Uh, both in its ability to give gifts to them, but also I don't want to ignore some of the language Paul uses in Acts 20 when he's talking about the elders in Ephesus. He says the the Holy Spirit made you overseers. And so there, there is a hand that the Holy Spirit has here right. that I think uh, is important to notice with right. as early as they're getting appointed. So right, yeah, good, 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 good. All right, well, okay. So, um, so we have Paul and Barnabas retracing their steps and appointing elders in these cities. And then I've got to get turned back to Acts chapter fourteen here, and let's yeah. pick up the reading and read through the end of the chapter, Chase. 
Verse 24 says that they passed through Pisidia and came down to Pamphylia. And after they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples. All right. So they get back to their home base, Antioch in Syria, and um, they they report on what's been going on. Anything you want to make note of in there, Chase? Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I just love this pattern. I think all three of us, or all four of us, rather, have probably worked in some capacity with a congregation that was supporting us for the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And remotely thank you that i was trying to find how i was going to tie that to that but yeah remotely is a great word so meaning you know for a long time i worked for five years in harrisburg pennsylvania the congregation there supported me to what they could but there were other churches in america that also um sent me money so that i could spend full-time work in evangelism in harrisburg and this was a pattern that we like to follow and so i would go to those congregations and report to them the different doors that God had opened. And so I think that's just a really healthy thing to see. And it's another way that we can be involved with the work of evangelism is in how we support gospel preachers to do that work. Good. Yeah. Joe, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, I have no idea what's going on. I'm not even on Wi-Fi. It's just my data even uh, just, uh, I don't know. Um, hmm. You need to talk to Al Gore about this because it's not working well. Um, <laughs> So, see if it's still see if the internet's still under warranty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but verse twenty seven. I think you guys said at least some of this. Uh, you know, in, in in any of our reports or whatever, uh, whether we verbalize this adequately or not, I sometimes worry. But but we must have in our hearts that it is the Lord that is doing these things. Amen. Yep. And Joe's gone again. Yeah, that's okay. He it's out, he ended on a really good sentence. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, strong. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we come to chapter 15 now. So in chapter 15 in verse 1, it says, men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. So they come down to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had have settled back home. Right. And these people that come from Judea to Antioch say, except you be circumcised after the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So apparently this is a fairly significant Jewish constituency there in, in Antioch, people who've been, con- I, I say Jewish, Gentile, people who are Gentiles who have become followers of Jesus Christ. And now you've got these brethren coming up from Judea, making sure that they understand they've got to be circumcised and uh, in order to, be part of this kingdom. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, verse two, had no small dissension and questioning with them. In other words, Paul and Barnabas just did not agree with that. And so uh, the brethren appointed that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem, which was in Judea, unto the apostles and elders about this question. I want to make note here, they're not going to Jerusalem because they, they need to go to headquarters to find out the truth. They're going to Jerusalem because that's where these guys have come from. And that's going to become more explicitly stated so- later on. I'm thankful you set that up well, because I, I have, when I've been reading through this and other people I've read through this for the first time, they'll normally say that. They're like, he's an apostle. Like, he's been doing miracles and stuff. Why does he need to go to Jerusalem to do this? Why doesn't he just come out and say, these guys are wrong. I'm an apostle. I'm telling you, it's okay. 
But I really think that there's a point to be made about peacemaking here. And Paul's want to clear things up in the right way and yep. not cause more dissension than is necessary. And so he humbly really steps himself out and says, all right, I'll go down there and I'll talk to them and I'll come back. Mm -hmm. But what he believed, his level of conviction does not change no, no. because his whole way there, he's, he's still <laughs> telling right. people about what had happened. Yeah, verse three, they therefore being brought on their way by the church passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles and they cause great joy unto all the brethren. And then Chase. Yeah, so he has, yeah, go ahead. And then, then when he gets to Jerusalem, it says, when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and the apostles and the elders, and they rehearsed all things that God had done with them. Well, what are the all things that God had done with them? Yeah, miracles and save the Gentiles and all kinds of things. That's right. So it looks to me like Paul and Barnabas go into Jerusalem just like, we're just going to go in and say, we've been baptizing Gentiles and the troublemakers yeah. will raise their little heads up and, and then we'll deal with it. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 5, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, say, and it's not surprising this is Pharisees, is it? Right. No, certain, not at all. They're believers, but they, they're, they are Pharisees, saying it's needful to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. The mentality here, Chase, is essentially the kingdom of God is a Jewish kingdom. And yes, okay, we found out we've got to let Gentiles in, but they have to convert to being Jews. They have to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, because this kingdom of God is a Jewish kingdom. God favors yeah. Jews over Gentiles. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you talk about for a second why you think that mentality creeped in? Why do you think that was their thinking? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, the Jews were not to make any covenants with the peoples of the land that they drove out. The people were idolaters. God says, you're going to be a holy people. You're not going to do the things that the peoples around you do. And that was all true. But from the beginning, God had said, I'm going to, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. Ultimately, to, when he made the promise to Abraham, uh, he said, in you and your descendants, all families, all families. Will be blessed. and as a matter of fact, Paul quotes in, in Galatians chapter three and verse eight, it actually says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand unto Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. That was the plan from the get go. But the Jews over time just focused on the fact that we're the chosen people. We get the promised land. Uh, we're not to be like the peoples around us. We're the ones. And, yep. and forgot that we're the ones God is going to use to bring the gospel to everybody. Yeah. And I don't know, too. I think about if I were a Jew, I think there would be a sense of pride that comes with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a sense of my family went through centuries of suffering to get to this point. We went through centuries of obeying this law. We went through centuries of circumcising our sons on the eighth day. How is it even possible that God would want anyone else to do something different? just because Jesus came and died, so, you know? And I think that would be a popular way of thinking. I and mean, it's really pride this, that it yeah. comes down to. And, and I'm glad you used the word pride, because I mentioned last week, I threw this thought out that back in Acts chapter 1345, when Paul was at Antioch, and at first he gets a good reception from the Jews, and they say, we want to hear you next week in the, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They come together next week. Now the whole city comes together, including Gentiles, and the Jews who the first week were favorably inclined to Paul, now, because of it, it says because of jealousy, 
It says they were filled with jealousy and they contradicted the things which were spoken by Paul and blaspheme. As soon as they see the whole city wanting to get in on this, including Gentiles, they're filled with jealousy. And, and the analogy I would use here to explain jealousy is like a jealous husband who does not want his wife's attentions going anywhere, but she is just his. And that's the way the Jews kind of thought of this relationship with God and the kingdom. This is just ours. It's not for anybody else. And when other people got in on it, their jealousy kicked in. Yeah. And they I don't know. Are you wanting to move on? Because there's a couple more things I no, can say about this. Here. No, no, that's fine. So I'll just say this too. A very common misconception that I thought for the longest time is that these Jews, when they became Christians, they did stop following the law and they did stop eating pork. But that's not how the New Testament talks about them. They no. continued to follow those practices and do those things. And even Paul, we're going to see him doing some Jewish things just to continue to show his Jewish brethren that he is still a Jew. And that was something I think I missed for the longest time, uh, Jeff. I, I don't know about you, but no, yeah, I think you're you're right. Um, you get over to Acts chapter twenty-one, and James talks about how many thousands there are of them that believe of the Jews who believe who are zealous for the law. And uh, in, and you alluded to the fact that even Paul participates in some of the Jewish rituals. He does so there in 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 Acts twenty-one, just to make the point. I'm not telling you Jews that you can't continue practicing these Jewish things. There's going to come a point when God's going to put an end to it with the destruction of the temple. But there's a period of time where you've got Jewish Christians still practicing all of the Jewish customs. And uh, so for them, this whole thing is a Jewish thing. You know what it's like, Chase? What's that? It's kind of like if you grow up in, say, North Alabama, where there are a lot of churches of God's people, and there are certain ways that things are just typically done. And you grow up in that environment and you get the idea that what you've experienced in that environment is the only way to do things. And then you go to some foreign country and you try to transplant the practices that was were traditional in your environment, in North Alabama. You try to transplant those into some other environment, not limiting yourself to what God's word teaches, but you the things you grew up with. That's the way it has to be done. And 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 that's kind of the way these Jews were. They, they had all these customs and traditions from their life in Judaism. They thought that was part of the gospel. Yeah. And I'm sure we're obviously going to get into the ins and outs of it next week, but I'll set it up this way, Jeff. A lot of what happens here in chapter 15 is going to unlock some of the things that we read about in the epistles, specifically Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. Because this was a real tension between the people of God in these local churches, the Gentiles and the Jews. And not only that, one of the common false teachers that Paul is going to have to deal with are Judaizers who are teaching this exact doctrine. Right, and right. so uh, to see the way this is handled in chapter 15, at least for me, helps me understand why Paul is making the cases and arguments that he is in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. Yeah. even Colossians and some of the other places. We'll have to spend a good bit of time on that next week. For for now, let's do this. Uh, they do discuss it in Jerusalem, and there are three uh, speeches that are made, I guess you could say, to basically uh, make the point, no, it's God's plan for Gentiles to be a part of this kingdom, and God doesn't make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. You don't have to be a Jew. And, and we'll come back and go through these in more detail next week. But first is Peter stands up, and says, you know, when I went to Cornelius's house back in Acts chapter 10, 
their hearts were cleansed by faith, not by keeping the law. And God didn't make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. They were just fine as Gentiles to be accepted. Paul and Barnabas stand up and say, God's been working miracles amongst us while we've been preaching amongst the Gentiles. That tells you it's God's will that Gentiles be a part of this. And then James is going to stand up and he's going to say, you know what? Even the prophets agreed to this. And he's going to quote from Amos, the ninth chapter. Which I appreciate you pointing that out on the front end of it, because a lot of people need to understand that that's how the Lord's church is supposed to come to decisions. It's not by anyone's opinion, but by asking, what is the word of God confirming and telling us? Even the apostles who were apostles of Jesus went back to figure out what God's word was. There you go. And we should be doing the same thing today when we try to figure things out. All right. Well, Chase, thank you. We, we've got a situation here we're going to have to get on top of. We're going to have to go find Joe. Go hunt him yeah. down, put out an APB for him or something. See what happened to Joe. Those those um, big snowflakes he was talking about finally got him. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Lord willing, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Oh, goodness. <laughs>